Welcome to Sal On Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal On Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal On Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Subscriptions are available now at lectures.org. In this episode, we hear from Frank McCourt, who joined us in November 2006 at Benaroya Hall for a lively talk about committing his youth to paper in his phenomenally popular memoir series, beginning with Angela's Ashes. At the conclusion of McCourt's talk, Margaret Rankin, then executive director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, joins him in an interview. McCourt, a New York City schoolteacher who taught for nearly three decades, always told his writing students, write what you know. It wasn't until his mid-60s in 1996 that he decided to follow his own advice, sitting down to produce the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award-winning Angela's Ashes, based on his poverty-stricken childhood in Limerick, Ireland. At the time of McCourt's visit, two more best-selling installments had followed his first offering, Tiz, describing his struggle to gain his footing in New York, and Teacher Man, an account of his misadventures as a public school teacher. Sadly, McCourt is no longer with us, but his incomparable voice lives on. In his talk, hear McCourt, with his uncanny humor and profound sense of humanity, characterize the Irish Catholic school of his youth as the school of fear and trembling. Find out how, as a young Korean War veteran with no high school diploma and no self-esteem, he was able to convince the dean of NYU to admit him, and how his education ill-prepared him for what he calls the flying sandwich situations in the tough vocational high schools of Brooklyn. Here is Frank McCourt, followed by a conversation with Margaret Rankin. Thank you. Thank you. I I have an announcement. If your cell phone goes off, answer it. Tell them where you are, and tell them send a contribution to to, to our cause. If cell phones are going to go off, we might as well use them and and make the caller feel guilty. So don't don't be shy about it. I know you're not supposed to, and it'll, it'll annoy people around you people who have less of a sense of civic responsibility than you do. Well, it's too bad about their sensitivity and so on. But because if if your caller sends a check for $1,000 to to the Writers and Schools program, then then, then, that's all I want to tell you. I came all the way from New York to, to speak at various functions like this. I was in Portland last night, and I think the night before I was in Sacramento, and I think before that I was in San Francisco. I don't know where the hell I am anymore. <laughs> uh, and, and I go around, I, I, you see, uh, the, the thing is, I, I used to be a high school teacher, and in many senses I'm still a high school teacher. I can't stop talking about it because it, it isn't until after something happens you begin to realize the effect that it had on you. 30 years of teaching. Well, what I was teaching, mm-hmm. going everywhere, mm-hmm. here they come. Uh, 30 years, uh, here they come into the room, and you're standing there at 8 o'clock in the morning, and all these teenagers are swarming into the room. 30 years of it. 30 years of it. <laughs> and it's the same every morning. Will you tell me, will you explain to me why teenage boys can't just walk into a classroom? <laughs> why do they have to push and jostle and wrestle and utter all kinds of obscenities, four-letter words? And I know why they're doing it, because the girls are already in there. They're usually two years more mature than the boys. 
And I, I noticed this when I, when I first started working in McKee Vocational High School in Staten Island. This was going on. The boys in auto mechanics and sheet metal and woodworking was pushing and showing and calling each other all kinds of names. The girls from secretarial studies and cosmetology, <laughs> which is for, for those of you, the men usually don't know what that means. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with Mars and Pluto and Jupiter. It has to do with something called beauty culture. And, and the girls are already sitting there filing their nails and glossing their lips and plucking their eyebrows. And while the boys are pushing and carrying on and wrestling, the girls are checking them out. They're looking at these idiots. These, and they're louts, they're louts at that age. There's no getting away. Lout is a very good word. They're louts and they're pushing into the room and so on. Hey, yo, baby, are you All this. And the girls are very patient, but what they're doing is checking out the sperm bank <laughs> of America. And they're looking at possible, uh, prob possibilities for the future fathers in their lives, and, and usually they reject them because uh, they're, they're too young and they're too foolish. And so, uh, there, are very, there are very few um, lasting companionships between kids in the, in the same class. Well, I, w I learned all of this as a teacher in my 30 years, because in the beginning, I didn't know anything. And you, because you know, you know the reputation or the image of, of, the, of teachers in this country. I'll give you an example. Way back in the 17th century in New York, which used to be called New Amsterdam because it, was, it belonged to the Dutch, uh, the first schoolmaster in in New Amsterdam around 1670 or something like that, was brought over. They didn't have a schoolmaster, a teacher in the whole colony of New Amsterdam. He was so badly paid, he had to take in washing. <laughs> it hasn't changed. <laughs> uh, oh, but you know, you get all that time off. <laughs> there were times, do you remember, uh, you remember Dr. Goebbels in the Nazi cabinet, he was minister for propaganda. He said one time, every, every time I hear the word culture, I want to reach for a gun. Well, every time I hear people saying about teachers, oh, you get all that time off, I want to reach for a gun. <laughs> I would. I, there are two people I would shoot easily. People who say you get all that time off and people who honk. <laughs> this world is in such a hurry. But when I hear this person, oh, oh, you get all that time off. I would like to explain to them something. For instance, that the, 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 the experience that I've had as a teacher of English in four different high schools in New York City. That, um, and I'm jumping ahead in my story now because there should be some kind of chronology here, but I can see this is a very intelligent audience <laughs> capable of taking great leaps in chronology. <laughs> so the great leap in chronology is this. When I was teaching at Stuyvesant High School, which is generally regarded as the best high school in New York City, except for the competitor of something called Bronx High School of Science, they both, uh-uh. <laughs> they, both, they both produced Nobel Prize, Prize winners, but the Stuyvesant Nobel Prize winners are a higher level than the, <laughs> than, than the Bronx Science Nobel Prize winner. So, uh, uh, in, in Stuyvesant High School and in all the other high schools that I taught in, I would ask the kids, because I was an English teacher and then later on a writing teacher, why I was chosen to be a creative writing, as they call it. For me, all writing is creative writing. Right, filling out your income tax form is creative writing. <laughs> so I'm, I, uh, I have these, so, these writing classes, and I'll say to the kids, would you write, and you know, I have to get to, stati to uh, statistics now. You have five classes a day in a high school. 
five days a week. Many of you don't realize this. And you might have 35 kids in each class. That's 175 kids every day, five times a week. And there they are, diverse America, Chinese, Cambodians, Puerto Ricans, Presbyterians, all kinds of kids. <laughs> And you have to, and you have to remember, you have to remember their names. Now, the the part of it that, and I used to, the, the Korean kids just get very upset because they're all named Kim, and but you have, to, there was a little reluctant laugh there. Uh, they're all named Kim, and they'd get upset if you didn't remember their their other name. So you'd say to these classes, I'd like you to write a 300-word composition on something or other. On, on your on, on on you know what led up to the Spanish American War, if 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 it was a history class, so uh, they'd hand in the compositions. Or I'd, I'd ask them to write something about about uh, Keats, Shelley, and Byron, these three poets who died so young and so on. Some some kind of a little research paper, or an essay on how they felt about the poetry of Keats or Shelley. So they hand in the papers, and you take the. You take the, they're handing in all, 175 papers multiplied by 300, and you take the papers home in your bag. It's leather. It's fall, fake leather. <laughs> they, we don't use the word fake anymore in New York. We say fall. <laughs> your fall leather bag. Uh, and you, because teachers don't get real leather, they get fall, the fall leather. <laughs> People are always giving teachers bags because they know they have stuff to take home with, with all the time off. Uh, th th this, is, this is the bag that takes care of all the time off, the evenings and the weekends and everything else. So you take the bag and you take it home on the subway and it, it's sitting next to you on the subway and you wish somebody would mug you. And, and, <laughs> I take the damn bag away. <laughs> so you get home and you have this bag, it's five o'clock or six o'clock in the evening. You're all, and you're, well, I have, I have to grade these papers. There's no way out. There's absolutely no, it has to be done. 175 times 300. And you, and you say, well, I'm, 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 I'm worn out. After a hard day dealing with American teenagers, I'm absolutely worn, I can't face it. I have to watch the news. Because you have to watch the news because these bright kids will bring up something about the situation in Bulgaria or something like that, or they'll mention some off-off-off-Broadway play, and you have to be, as we say, au courant. <laughs> That's French word number two. Faux and au courant. <laughs> Next thing I'll say, bourgeoisie, but I'm ahead of my story. Uh, so we have, we, we have the, the bag here, and you... And you I, it's over there, and it has a kind of uh, a menacing attitude. It's like an old dog wait, waiting to be taken care of. And you know, you, your wife is there. In my case, I'm a man, and so I had a wife. I know there are other people who don't have wives, but that's the new America. There are other people who have something called partners. Uh, but I happen to have a wife because I'm heterosexual. I'm not proud of it. I would have flourished in Sodom and Gomorrah, probably. <laughs> I would have sold out. I don't care, it doesn't matter. It's all relative, theologically. So there's, there's the bag, and I have to watch the news and so on. The wife and I have dinner and so on. And then I say, I have to get to these papers, but uh, then, you know, you have to have a cup of tea or something like that. And then, you know, I've been working all day, I've been in all day, you say so you have to take an, uh, a walk. You have to take a little stroll up where I lived in Court Street in Brooklyn. And at the top of Court Street in Brooklyn, there was a wonderful gathering place uh, called the Blarney Stone. It was, and it was a bar. And there were people in there who were not teachers. And they could afford to hang out there and discuss the Federal Reserve and things like that, and, and, and the war in Vietnam at the time, all this. And I'd go in there saying to myself, as I have often said in my life, one, <laughs> just one. 
Well, as the poet said, bird never flew on one wing. So you have to have two, and I'd have two or three, and then go home, and then I'm, I'm, then I have to watch the 10 o'clock or the 11 o'clock news, and then I said, well, I'll do it in the morning. I get up at four, and this is like a high school kid or a college kid who has term papers to do or research papers. I'll set the clock for 4 a.m., and I do, and the clock goes off. There's nothing more obnoxious than a clock going off at 4 a.m. and I smash it against the opposite wall and go back to sleep. And, I go into, and then I go into the, back into the school. Mr. McCord, did you read my paper? I did, Ray, but I have to give it another look. Uh, <laughs> and then the next day passes and I, I, did, I haven't got around to it because you know you, it's very hard to settle down to it. And you don't want to appear weak with the kids, so you want to look tough and demanding, uh, which, which was beyond my capacity. So I, the, the, the way to deal with that is to assign them another paper. <laughs> now the four bag is barely able to contain two times 175 papers, thousands, thousands and thousands of adolescent words. And so I, I put all the next 175 papers into the bag next to the ones that I, I still haven't corrected. And I'm getting this sense of despair all over again. I know, how the hell, when am I going to do this? But, well, you know, you have all that time off. So I, yeah, in the evenings. In the evenings, teachers have all that time off, but they don't have all that time off. So I, I, I take the bag, and I'm, t I'm, I'm making a confession to you now. And don't tell, don't tell any of my former students about this. There was one time when I got so desperate that I was walking up Clinton Street in Brooklyn towards the subway station on my way to work. I get, get this sense of despair. I'll never be able to deal with these papers. I'll never be able to read all these papers. I th and I came, there was, there was a, a big, uh, 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 there was a house being renovated, and outside there was a big dumpster. And I just let go with my, with my fall bag. And when I went into school, indeed, I told them, I said, so Mr. McCourt, did you? Well, I'm sorry, I was mugged on the subway this morning. It was a lie, and I'm very sorry for it. And I'm sending out letters to all the students I had that year, admitting them, and I'm making a, a, an abject confession now. But that, that, was the, that was the rhythm of life of, of the teacher. The Dutch schoolmaster had to take in washing. And as I said, it, has, it hasn't changed much since. And, the last, in the, and then in the last few months, I've been going around, well, on one hand, promoting a book, Teacher Man, which is still available in all fine bookstores. And the hardcover is much better than the paperback. <laughs> it, I mean, if, you, if you appreciate the teachers in your life, or the ones who are about to become teachers, don't give them a paltry paperback. <laughs> this will become a classic. Uh, so I've been going around and wondering more and more about, about, the, about the role of teachers in, in, the, in the society. Some of you went to private schools, more power to your elbow, you had, your people had a lot of money and so on. But very, uh, and some of you went to public schools. But even if you went to public schools, you don't understand what was standing before you up in, the, in, in that classroom. Well, you think they, they walk in there, they stand up there and they just lecture. Well, they don't. University professors do that. <laughs> They're a superior class of people. <laughs> they don't have problems with discipline and so on. They go in and they lecture for an hour on Shakespeare's use of the semicolon or something <laughs> like that. Try that with a high school class. <laughs> I'm telling you now what I discovered along the way, that, that, that I, uh, I spent my 30 years in the classroom. When I, <clears throat> when I, I was born in Brooklyn and went back to Ireland and came back here when I was 19. And I didn't know what to do with myself. I'm just backtracking a bit now. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I certainly never, never, when I got off that boat in 1919, 19, 19, uh, 49, I never expected to become a teacher. That was too high. 
that expectation. I th all I thought I'd have in, in America was a lowly job or a job as a clerk, maybe in an insurance company. And I'd spend, I'd, I'd get this job and I'd wear a suit and a tie and everything else. And I'd spend 30 or 40 years in this insurance company and the day would come for my retirement. In between, I'd marry a nice girl named Maureen. Uh, and we'd have three children and then we'd practice, we'd commit the deadly sin of contraception. Uh, or refrain from sexual congress. Because if you, if you engage in sexual congress, there might be a baby, and you, and, that's, and you cannot practice contraception. That was my generation. So I thought that's what I'd do, but um, the Chinese saved me. The Chinese invaded Korea, and uh, America got nervous and turned to me, and, 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 dra and drafted me drafted me and, and sent me overseas to Germany, where I spent two years, 18 months in Germany, and they, they put me into something called the Canine Corps, where, uh, which, where, uh, which is where I trained dogs, German Shepherd attack dogs, for, for 18 months. I didn't even like dogs, uh, because, because I'd been attacked so many by so many dogs in Ireland when I was a telegram boy. But I trained, I, trained the, I trained the dogs for 18 months, and it was very good practice for my future career as a teacher <laughs> in, in New York. So I, uh, I got out of the army then with, the, you know, with this tremendous fighting man, an infantryman, infantry fighting man in the, in the Canine Corps. And I didn't know what to do with myself when I got out. So I went working on the docks and the piers in New York City. And then uh, one, something happened one day. We finished, load, we finished unloading a ship, and the pier boss said, we're finished, so go home. That was very rare, so I walked up Hudson Street in New York and went to a bar that I used to, that I used to frequent called the White Horse Tavern. And you, it's become a very touristy place now. You probably, you probably go there, in, in my honor. Uh, and if you go to the White Horse Tavern, in the middle of the bar, I sat on a high stool and I had a, a beer and a knockwurst. Because of my years in Germany, I'd become a real gourmet in the knockwurst department. So I'm having my beer and my gourmet, and I started doing something very dangerous for a young Irishman, ill-equipped for this particular activity. I began to think <laughs> and brood. I was brooding about the meaning of it all and where was I going. I was now uh, just uh, discharged from the army and 22 years of age, not knowing what to do with myself, and having no high school diploma, and, and, and on top of that, having no self-esteem, not knowing what the hell I was going to do with myself in the land of the free and the home of the brave, where there are all kinds of opportunities. But I, uh, I left my knockwurst. I walked away from my knockwurst and my beer and walked across Bleecker Street in Greenwich Village. I didn't know where I was going, but something was leading me. And those of you who live in the West Coast and are new age and extremely spiritual will understand that I was being led. <laughs> I was being led across Bleecker Street to New York University. And I didn't know I was being led to New York, New York University. I knew it existed. And there's Washington Square. And I don't know why I said to somebody, where's the admissions office? Over there. I went into the admissions office and I filled out the form for admissions. And they thought it was rather amusing that when, when I uh, came to the part which asked for your high school, I didn't fill it in because I'd never set foot in a high school. And they thought it was very funny. But then accident, serendipity of whatever you want to call it, came to my aid. The dean of admissions was passing by and she said, what's going on here? And they said, this, this young man wants to go to New York University and he doesn't have any high school diploma. He says he never set foot in a high school. And I was desperate. I said, well, I've read a lot of books. Oh, she said, what have you read? I said, I've, I've read uh, Charles Dickens. Oh, she said, everybody's read Charles Dickens, which I found out later was ridiculously untrue. <laughs> when I started teaching, nobody had read nothing. 
And she was unimpressed by that. So then I thought I'd ratchet it up a bit. I said, well, I've read Dostoevsky. Ooh, she showed greater interest, but not enough. And then I, I hit her with the home run. I said, I've read James Joyce's Ulysses. Oh, nobody has read James Joyce's Ulysses. <laughs> but because I was Irish, she thought, oh, mm. I, if she had asked me what it was about, I wouldn't have been able to tell her, but I knew. Uh, and I, 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 was, I, I was going to tell her I read Finnegan's Wake, but that would have been pushing it, because James Joyce himself couldn't read Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> so I was admitted to New York University on probation. If I could maintain uh, a B average for, for a year, I would, I would matriculate. That wasn't hard, maintaining a B average at New York University. After my experience of going to elementary school in Ireland, because NYU seemed easy after Leamy's National School in Ireland, where our main activity was fear and trembling. <laughs> from, the, from what they call, when I first went to school in Ireland, the first class I went into was called infants which is the same as kindergarten, but they called it infants. And the first lesson I ever had was in the Irish alphabet. And I'm a four-year-old kid from Brooklyn, introduced to the, to the Irish alphabet. And we had to stand there and recite it. Everything was recitation, then the first grade. Then, then I spent my eight years in, in, uh, in Leamy's National School, where the main form of instruction was beating the shit out of you. Yeah. <laughs> with the stick, the strap, and the cane. And, and if, if that didn't work, then there was humiliation. And there were, two, there were two topics paramount in the education I got. One, how the English invaded us 800 years ago. <laughs> and we suffered desperately, but we were noble. We were always rising up to fight. We went forth to battle and we fell. We, they went forth to battle and they often fell. And because of that, all of this fighting, we produced this tremendous repertoire of song and story and lamentation. There's, don't talk to me about Jewish guilt and Jewish suffering. It's nothing compared with the Irish. <laughs> no. And the other, the, other, the other element, and I'll get back to the Irish thing, the other element was the Catholic Church. The one holy Roman Catholic and apostolic church. I don't know if, if you look at your life and anything shaped you. In my case, I think it was Irish history and the one holy Roman Catholic and apostolic church. And because we went to school in fear and trembling because we were afraid of the school teachers, the masters because we had to memorize everything. We had to memorize the 32 counties of Ireland and the major towns of the 32 counties of Ireland and the major imports and exports of the 32 counties of Ireland. Their major exports were people. <laughs> all, all of the counties. And that, that was easy. So, but then, but the, the most challenging part of it was, um, was the church. In a sense, it was, it was a rich experience because we were, given, we, were, we were given some kind of a structure. And I want to thank the Catholic Church right here and now for making me suffer <laughs> the way it did. Because first of all, there are seven sacraments. Uh, and the first, the first sacrament is baptism. That little baby that you held yesterday your child or your grandchild, it seems so innocent and pure, kicking bright little eyes. It is, it is infected with original sin, <laughs> which it got from Adam and Eve and the carry on up there. So this little baby that seems so innocent has to be baptized. And it has to be baptized in the one Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church which is the only genuine and authentic form of baptism. All this stuff about dipping you into a pool or something like that, or whatever, it doesn't work, because that's, that, that's all invalid. There is one true church, 
outside, we were told, outside of the church, there is no redemption. I don't know. And then I, looked, I used to look at these Protestant girls in Limerick going to, to church on a Sunday morning, and I wanted to call them, come with me, because they're always better looking than the Catholic girls. It's, they were better fed, they were better clothed. Come with me, come with me, I'll have you baptized, and we'll all go to heaven together. But, and and, and this, this is what we believe. So there had to be baptism. We were baptized. And then down the road a bit, when you were six or seven, you had to have first confession and first communion. In the, for all, all through your school, you were imbued with a strong sense of sin. When I was teaching in Stuyvesant High School, the best, the brightest kids in the country, and we're discussing James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man, and I, it suddenly dawned on me that there was something lacking in the classroom. And I said to the kids, 80% of them were Jewish. This is why they didn't have the sense of sin. And I said, do you know the, do you know the seven deadly sins? No. And I said, how the hell can you enjoy yourself if you... If you, if you how do you know when you're transgressing? That's the favorite activity of young male and female Catholics, transgressing. And then I had to put the, I had to put the deadly sins on the board. Pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. They were embedded in my little head from Leamy's National School in Ireland. Because I remember uh, uh, we, we had to deal with all of this. This is one, one, one of the things about life. You have to deal with things. You're taught something, or you're taught the deadly sins, and then, as I say, you, in, as we say now, we internalize them. What that means, I don't know. It leads to a great spiritual constipation, as far as I'm concerned. So, we, we internalize these sins. Pride was all right. I didn't care about pride. Pride is getting above yourself. Uh, and it's get, thinking you're bigger than God. Uh, uh, and, and pride, co covetousness is lust. Pride, co greed, lust. Lust. That was the big one in Ireland. Anger, gluttony, envy, and so on. So when I, 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 because I, I had got into a lot of trouble with the teacher, Mr. Mr. O'Dee, because he said to me uh, in front of the class, McCourt, yes, sir. Who made the world? God. God what? God, sir. Why did God make the world? I forgot the standard answer. So we'd all have something to stand on, sir. <laughs> and I'm hauled out of my seat and beaten around the room. And I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to get back in his good, in his good graces. I want to suck up to him. Sir, I know the best deadly sin. Oh, you do, do you? You know the best deadly sin. He knows the best deadly sin. I'm going to be destroyed now in front of the boys in my class. He knows the best deadly sin. And what's the best deadly sin, McCord? Sir, it's the sloth. Because the sloth is the laziness. And the laziness is doing nothing. And if you're doing nothing, you can't be committing the other deadly sins. Yeah. This, turned us, this turned us into, into amateur little theologians at the, at, at the age of seven and eight. And, and, then, and then, of course, you, ha you, you, have to, you, you have to know what the sins are. Not only do you have seven deadly sins, but you have, se you have ten commandments. And then there's an, another hierarchy of, of sins, definition of sins. Uh, this, I think this one is peculiar to Ireland. It's the unforgivable sin. So what's the unforgiv unforgivable sin? Nobody knows. <laughs> but you'll know when you do it. <laughs> and you have to go to Rome to confession. Uh, and we wondered, we, we, we were out in the schoolyard, we figured out a, a, an unforgiv the unforgivable sin is kicking a nun in the hip. Uh, <laughs> or a priest in his marriage prospects. Yeah. <laughs> So then below that is the sacrilege. And the sacrilege would be something like defiling the church, 
throwing stuff at the altar, and then that's another one. And that's practically, practically unforgivable. And then below that is the one we all commit all the time. Mortal, the mortal sin. You know, adultery and fornication and stealing and lying and so on. A mortal sin gets you sent to hell when you die. The unforgivable, the sacrilege and the mortal sin gets you sent to hell forever. And they were very good at describing hell. It's a place where you go for eternity. For eternity, when you burn and you burn and you burn, the word ash doesn't exist in hell. <laughs> Nothing is reduced to ashes in hell. And you, you spend eternity there screaming and howling, yearning for the grace of God and so on. And there are thousands of devils running around with red hot pitchforks ready to shove up your little white ass. And, <laughs> And, and this is your fate for eternity. And below that then is the venial sin, the little white lie. If you die with a little white lie on your soul, you're sent to purgatory for a few million years till, the, till, the, till this is burned away. And then God sends down a message, release him. He, he only hit another car or something, release him. So you, you go, and then the other place, uh, which is not a place for sinners, is limbo. A limbo is a place uh, where little unbaptized babies go, little Presbyterian babies and, <laughs> and Muslim babies and Methodists and people like that, because they're not Catholic. And it, 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 was, it was fairly benign. It, there's no suffering there, except that they don't enjoy the presence of God. But they're flitting around. I think I, 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 I assign them wings. And all these little babies are flying around for eternity, chirping away, and fairly happy. And then, um, then, the, then now the Vatican. The Vatican is now discussing the abolition of limbo. <laughs> After 2,000 years, <laughs> all these little babies, and if they do abolish limbo, where are the babies going? And then what about all the people? There's a mort there was a mortal sin in the church up to the Vatican Council in the 1960s. One of the mortal sins was you may not eat meat on a Friday. And if you did and you died, you went to hell. So, now that, that, then they abolished it. What about all these meat eaters in hell? <laughs> have they, they been given the express train to heaven? Well, I've written to Benedict XVI about limbo. They're not answering my, my, my questions there. This is the stuff, this is the stuff uh, I arrived in America with, this sense of sin all the time. The something called the sin of commission, which means you did it. The sin of omission, which means you didn't do it. So whether you did or didn't do it, they have you. you <laughs> there's no escape. I arrived in America at 19 with all of this stuff, all this baggage all this baggage about history and, and so on. And later on in my life, I said, I arrived at this conclusion that I wanted to get rid of this baggage. I said to myself, I wasn't put in this earth to be Irish. I wasn't put in this earth to be American or Catholic or Protestant or Jewish or Muslim or Republican or Democrat. I was a little naked baby and people took advantage of me and impose that crap on me. Uh, so now, later in life, later in life, I have to discard all of this and start all over again. See, my model, my, my favorite moment in American history was a, a moment of purification with the people who gathered, usually in Kansas City, and got onto their covered wagons, their Conestoga wagons, and set out for the West. They didn't know where the hell they were going or what they were going to find. And they endured all, they endured all kinds of suffering and adventure. They put up with the locusts and mosquitoes and, and, and miscarriages and Apaches and everything, and, and arrived. Many of them died on the way. But I think that's the journey. And that's, I think, the journey that I wanted to take on for myself. And then, of course, I started teaching. This is my first day in a classroom in New York. I was told, if you're going to teach, stay away from vocational high schools because the kids will chew you up and spit you out. I tried to get a job in other schools, but they said uh, they noticed I had an accent. 
And they didn't want their children going home sounding like Barry Fitzgerald or Maureen O'Sullivan <laughs> or Maureen O'Hara. A boy from the back of the class, Petey, called out, Anyone want a bologna sandwich? You kidding? Your mama's hate you giving you sandwiches like that. Petey threw his brown paper sandwich bag at the critic Andy, and the class cheered, fight, fight, fight. The bag landed on the floor between the blackboard and Andy's front row desk. I came from behind my desk and made the first sound of my teaching career. Four years of higher education at New York University, and all I could think of was, hey! <laughs> they ignored me. They were busy promoting the fight that would kill time and divert me from any lesson I might be planning. I moved toward Petey and made my first teacher's statement. Stop throwing sandwiches. That's, that's classroom management. <laughs> Petey in the class looked startled. This new teacher just stopped a good fight. New teachers are supposed to mind their own business or send for the principal or dean, and everyone knows it's years before they come which means you can have a good fight while waiting. Besides, what are you going to do with a teacher who tells you stop throwing sandwiches when you already threw the sandwich? <laughs> From the back of the room, Benny called out, Hey, teach! He already threw the sandwich. No use telling him, no, don't throw the sandwich. There's the sandwich right there on the floor. <laughs> Professors of education at New York University never lectured on how to handle flying sandwich situations. <laughs> They talked about theories and philosophies of education, moral and ethical imperatives, about the necessity of dealing with the whole child, the gestalt, if you don't mind, the child's felt needs, but never about critical moments in the classroom. Should I say, hey, Petey, get up here and pick up that sandwich or else, or should I pick it up myself and throw it in the waste paper basket to show my contempt for people who waste food while millions starve? They had to recognize that I was boss, that I was tough, that I would take none of their shit. The sandwich in wax paper lay halfway out of the bag, and the aroma told me there was more to this than bologna. I picked it up and slid it from its wrapping. It wasn't any ordinary sandwich where meat is slapped between slices of tasteless white American bread. This bread was dark and thick, baked by an Italian mother in Brooklyn, bread firm enough to hold slices of a rich bologna layered with slices of tomato, onions and peppers, drizzled with olive oil and charged with a tongue-dazzling relish. <laughs> I ate the sandwich, if you can. <laughs> well, it was as if somebody had written a script. Who's passing by? but the principal, and he looks in the window, and he sees me at nine o'clock in the morning, standing in front of the class, eating, eating this sandwich, and I'm, I'm summoned to his office and warned that this must not happen again. <laughs> then the next day, uh, a kid named Joey Santos calls out, Yo, teach! You're not to call out, you're to raise your hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. They have a way of saying yay, yay. They tell you they're barely tolerating you. In the yay, yay, they're saying, we're trying to be patient, man, giving you a break because you're a new teacher. Your teacher, man, call me Mr. McCourt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so you, you scotch or something? <laughs> Joy is the mouth. There's one in every class, along with the complainer, the clown, the goody-goody, the beauty queen. The volunteer for everything, the jock, the intellectual, the mama's boy, the mystic, the sissy, the lover, the critic, the jerk, the religious fanatic who sees sin everywhere, the brooding one who sits in the back staring at the desk, the happy one, the saint who finds good in all creatures. It's the job of them all to ask questions, anything to keep the teacher from the boring lesson. No, I'm not Scotch, I'm Irish. Oh yeah, what's Irish? Anything that comes out of Ireland. Oh yeah, like St. Patrick, right? Well, no, not exactly. 
And this leads to the telling of the story of St. Patrick, which keeps us away from the boring English lesson, which leads to other questions. Hey, mister, everyone talk English over there in Ireland? What kind of sports you play? You're Catholics in Ireland? Don't let them take over the classroom. Stand up to them, show them who's in charge. Be firm or be dead. Tell them, open your notebooks. Time for the spelling list. Ah, oh, teacher, man, oh, God, spelling. Do we have to? They moan. Boring spelling list. They pretend to bang their heads in, on desks, bury their faces in their folded arms. They beg for the past. Gotta go, gotta go, man. Man, we thought you was a nice guy, young and all. Why do all these English teachers have to do the same old things, same old spelling lesson, same old vocabulary lesson, same old shit, excuse the language. Can't you tell us more about Ireland? Your teacher, man. Joy again. Joy, I told you my name is Mr. McCourt. Mr. McCourt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so like, Mr. Did you go out with girls in Ireland? No, damn it, sheep. We went out with sheep. What do you think we went out with? <clears throat> so, you know how it is at home. So, honey, how was school? Well, you know, we got this new teacher from Ireland, and he's got this thing about sheep. <clears throat> and I'm called, <clears throat> I'm called into the principal's office the next day. <laughs> I discovered in life, sometimes it's very difficult to explain simple things. How do you explain the sandwich situation? How do you explain your reasons for eating the sandwich? How do you explain how frustrated you were that you, you said sheep? And then he says, you know, people are, the phone is ringing off the hook. Well, I said, um, I said, well, I, I don't know, I, I thought the sheep thing was a bit funny at the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 you're standing up there advocating bestiality. <laughs> uh, you know, I, if, another incident like this, I'm going to have to put a letter in your file. And I, did, I guess I didn't really have, have the proper response. He said, letter in your file, you know, negative letter in your file. If you want to rise in the system, be an assistant principal, or principal, you know, this, this will be an impediment to your rise in the system. I said, I know, I, I just came here to teach. Oh yeah, well, he said, they all say that. Six months from now, you'll be clamoring to get out of the classroom. You'll be taking courses in administration and supervision. And I, 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 then I began to get a hint of what goes on in the school system. That if you, if you become a teacher, well, you're the last, you're the lost in the, in, in the scale. If you become a teacher and you're a good teacher, you're encouraged to leave the classroom because there are greater rewards out there down the hallway. You could take the exam for assistant principal and you get your own office and you get a secretary and you get your own toilet with double ply toilet paper and everything else. And you go off at various points and you go off to conventions all around the world to Maui uh, you're out there in Maui discussing the problem of how to deal with uh, objectionable, obnoxious teachers, teachers who are talking back to you, and you come back with a deep tan, and you feel sorry for all those teachers in the classroom who are paid much less than you. And that's the mystery. It's the only profession in the world where, you're in, which, where if you're any way good at all, you're encouraged to leave it. And you, you get more advantages and benefits and higher pay for leaving the classroom. I can't think of any other profession, doctors and lawyers or something, where you're encouraged and rewarded for leaving what you do. Can you imagine a brain surgeon getting a job as a hospital administrator? <laughs> He's in there, he performed the most precious work in the world. Or a teacher, a teacher's in there, teaching kids, expiring, inspiring them and so on. Oh, well, you know, the money isn't that good in the classroom. Go down the hall, we'll get a little office, be an assistant principal or a dean or a guidance counselor or something. So then the, the best talent is sucked away from the classroom. It's a mystery to me. And I'm just posing it to you, because some of you might understand mystery. Some of you, like me, might have grown up as Catholics. So you, <laughs> you'll understand the nature of mystery. So I spent my, my, um, my 30 years in the classroom, I went from one school to another, and I suppose I wound up in the best high school in New York City, uh, Stuyvesant High School, where I was what they call the creative writing teacher. And when I while I was there, I was walking up uh, 
Sixth, uh, Second Avenue in New York with my, with my wife. And we saw this young man coming towards us. Uh, he, and he, uh, now I'm going to use a word in, in, in the next few sentences, an objectionable word. And uh, you can leave if you like it. <laughs> so the, he's, this young man is walking towards us. He said, hi, Mr. McCourt. I said, hi, Moose. He said, you know me? I said, yeah, Moose Klein. He said, I was in your class. I said, I know you were in my class. How are you doing? He said, I was in your class for a year and a half. I know Moose. He said, I was in your class for a year and a half, and now I'm a poet, and I'm starving, and fuck you. <laughs> that's, that, that's. So that's the thanks you get. <laughs> then the... Um, 30 years, after, after 30 years, I, uh, and, and telling the kids stories and listening to the kids telling me I should write a book, uh, I retired and went and wrote a book. And that's why I'm here. All those years in the classroom and, and nobody paid me a scrap of attention. Then I wrote a book and I was up there with Katie Corrick and Diane Sir, and that's why I'm here. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have time for a few questions, and I'll start while you're gathering them from the ushers. Um, you started the book that became Teacher Man as a novel, mm. uh, but have said that reality got in the way. Um, and I understand you're working on a novel now, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the different challenges you face when writing fiction and writing a memoir. Uh, the, the memoir, uh, well, you, 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 you dip into your own life and, and, and there's the material. You try to write fiction. I'm trying to write a, a book about women. And as I said, I'm a Catholic and I still wear the mystery in life. And women, women are the last mystery. And I, I, I think I have a title for it. When I think of all that women have done to me. Uh, the, the, the title, of, the title of the novel is Time on the Cross. Right there. <laughs> is it uncomfortable or odd for you to meet people every day who are so familiar with your life and childhood from your books while you know nothing about them? Oh, I know about them. Human <laughs> nature doesn't change. I think that's, that's one of the things about, about writing, about having been a teacher, have all this experience. After having, uh, I know adolescents are adolescents, and they're, 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 young, uh, they're young adults, but I had 12,000 of them be sitting before me, and I read all of their compositions and essays and so on. So I learned an awful lot, of, I think, about human nature. I'm glad uh, I, I did, that, that, I, that I've had these experiences. For instance, if I hadn't had a miserable childhood, I wouldn't have been up to write Angel's Ashes. So every morning I get down on my two knees and thank God for my miserable childhood. <laughs> Otherwise, I might have grown up and been a Republican. <laughs> what was the hardest thing you had to teach? The hardest thing they had to teach? It, it, well, that's, that's hard to answer because it would depend on the situation. I was in four, I was in four different high schools. Uh, McKee, which was the hardest, was where I started my, my career. The hardest thing was trying to keep the kids in their, in their seats. In a, in a vocational high school, they don't want to, they want to be back in their shop, sheet metal and auto mechanics and the rest of it. They don't want to listen to me prattling on about the parts of a sentence. So just to hold them, and I think that first day with the sandwich, that was, that, that, was extra, that was dramatic because they saw me eating the sandwich and they looked at me. They actually looked at me because they, they have a way of not looking at you, which is supposed to make you feel very nervous and so on. And then the word went around the school, hey, we've got this new teacher guy who's 
we got this thing about sandwiches. Watch out for your sandwiches. So, <laughs> so I getting keeping keeping order in the what they call order in the classroom. But the more the more you the more the more time you spend in the classroom, the more you learn about the tricks. For, for in the second school, uh, the third the second school I was in, which was uh, uh, high school of fashion industries. Um, the, the chairman, as they call them, then, of, of the English department didn't like me at all. I don't know, he, I, I'm charming, I'm, I'm, I'm easy going, I, I, but he didn't like me at all because he was, he was you know, full of it. And, <laughs> and uh, we didn't get along, so he ex I was excessed, which means I was fired. Now they call it made me redundant, which means you're fired. So my wife, uh, ex-wife, former wife, number one, uh, she, uh, she, she was taking a maternity leave at Sewer Park High School. So I went on there and took her place. And off she went on, on her maternity leave. I took over her classes. And I'm getting on the elevator one day. And who comes on the elevator but the former ch chairman from the previous school, who's now appointed principal in the school that I'm in. And I said to him, are you following me? And, <laughs> He didn't think this was a bit funny. And then one day, one day we had a faculty meeting and he, uh, he's sitting up on the stage, it's in the auditorium, he's sitting up the stage with the implements of power, the podium and, and the microphone and all. And I'm coming down the middle aisle and I said, so Mr. McCord, are you a father yet? I said, no, not yet. What do you say, what do you want, a boy or a girl? And I said, it's all the same to me. What he said, as long as it's not a neuter. Well, I said, if it is, I'll train it to grow up and be a principal. And that, yeah. but, uh, and that's how I found myself at Stuyvesant High School. <laughs> what is the most important skill a teacher can have? What's the most important skill a teacher can have? It all depends on the class and what you're teaching and so on. There are no blanket rules. It all depends on you, your personality, the subject you're teaching, the nature of the class. I think patience. Patience, kindness, compassion, a sense of humor, all of that. And you have to leave your ego at the door. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you decide what private stories to make public, and which private stories to keep private? I could give you a smart-ass answer. <laughs> the ones that make the most money. But that's facetious. I want to be a serious artist. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Which student in your 30-year teaching career made the biggest impression on you, and who will you never forget? The one, her name was Lisa, of course. I've had a million Lisas. Uh, and this one was a genius, poet, absolute genius. I was in awe of her. But she, she had anorexia, she was all screwed up, she spent, and she had to go into the hospital with the anorexia. Then she went to uh, Yale because she was, you know, A++++ and all that. Graduated from the Yale, magna cum laude, summa cum laude, all the cum laude. And then she comes out and, and uh, uh, she used to call me from Yale, uh, Frank, I've just taken an overdose. And then I would have to call the security people at Yale and get her rushed to the hospital. She did this two or three times. Finally I said, one night she calls me at 3 a.m. And I said, Lisa, if you, if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. And I said, because I'm, I'm not going to call security at Yale anymore. And she didn't do it. She came out then, and she became a, a school secretary in a private school. Then she became a librarian for Newsweek magazine. And I asked, I meet her sometimes in the street, and she looks, she looks wretched. And, this, and I said, um, uh, how about the poetry, Lisa, are you writing? Leave me alone about the poetry. So that's it. She's made the biggest impression on me, and, 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 she, and she offered me the greatest tragedy of all the students that I ever had. If you hadn't become a teacher, what career would you have undertaken? Banker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that because they're here. 
no, I think I, I think I, I I would have liked to have been a journalist more than more than more than even more than a banker. Uh, uh, <laughs> what was it like to achieve fame relatively late in your career, and do you think you experienced it differently than if you? had achieved it as a younger man? Oh, if I had achieved any kind of fame earlier in my life, I'd be dead now of whiskey and fornication. <laughs> I wouldn't have lasted. It took you 15 years as a teacher before becoming comfortable, what would you advise young people entering the profession? If I, if I were a teacher of teachers, I'd tell them, or, or young people in general, and this is a general rule about life, find what you love and do it, because anything else is worthless and waste of time. Don't listen to your elders, don't listen to anybody, but search your guts to find what, what, and everybody loves something. If you don't, go looking for it. That was the great, this is the great American story. Head west, go west, young man. By going west, you're going into your soul. And don't settle for anything, because parents are always tormenting their children. No, I, I'm a lawyer, I'd like you to be a lawyer. I'm sending you Harvard. Ah, oh, bullshit. I, I, want to, I want to play the ukulele in Maui. That's for the rest of life. <laughs> They'll go play the ukulele and more. What the hell does it matter as, if you have some set of, not happiness. I'm not too keen on happiness. <laughs> I, 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 it's a waste of time. Uh, so find what you love and do it. Henry David Thoreau said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And that's not what you want to inflict on your children and grandchildren. Tell them, be, go hit the road, Jack. <laughs> How do you feel about the fact that many people have taken Angela's ashes to be a representation of the common experience of growing up in Ireland? Well, I mean, it is it's fairly, it was fairly common, but among my, my economic level, lower class, lower class but dreaming of, get, of getting out of it. Uh, it was, that was the, my, the Ireland I grew up in, which as is, it was poverty stricken and priest ridden, it was all of these things. But now it's, now it's different. Now it's, now it's, as I said, their favorite activity is a whiskey and fornication uh, in Ireland. It's gone to hell altogether. Nope, <laughs> nobody pays any attention. The church has lost their grip completely. The Irish are, they have so much money, they're impi importing Englishmen to work for them. <laughs> how often do you return to Ireland, and how do you feel about the recent economic boom there. Oh, I go back all the time. It gives me such pleasure to walk around the streets of Limerick, for instance, and to see the cranes everywhere booming, everything building and building, the building cafes along, along the River Shannon. And you can walk along the main street of Limerick and you'll hardly hear an Irish accent. The Polish government is setting up schools. There are 150,000 150, Poles in Ireland and they're, they're coming from Romania. They had a job fair in New York a few weeks ago. The Irish, and people are flocking to this hotel in Hilton, I think, in New York, applying for jobs in Ireland. They're coming from Nigeria, Romania, and Brooklyn. <laughs> do you use a computer to type your manuscripts, or do you prefer to do a rough drafts by writing in longhand? I, I write longhand in notebooks. I'm, you know, I'm so conditioned to composition books. And then, then I put it into the computer. Did you like the film adaptation of Angela's Ashes? It was noble. It was, it was, uh, it was, the director, Alan Parker, wanted to be faithful to the book, and he was. It, it needed a different kind of script, I think. It needed a crazier script. But it, was, uh, uh, it, it didn't make any money. But I think it was noble, and I think it's beautiful. But there was something, some people say it, they, they stress the sad, the melancholy part of it too much instead of the eccentricity of poverty. What, what should a teacher say to a student who claims that he or she has nothing of interest in his or her life to write about? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and could you tell us about the plans you have to write another book? The plans that I have to write another book? Well, I, I just meant I'm writing a book. The major character is a woman. She's Irish-American. She has all kinds of problems and so on. That's what I'm getting. I'm waiting for the novel to tell me what it's all about. Yeah, so I, 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 I should be at home right now instead of here. <laughs> well, that said, I'm going to thank you all for coming tonight, and thank, thank you. you, Frank LaCourt. That was Frank McCourt at Seattle Arts and Lectures in 2006. This was Sal On Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal On Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal On Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Subscriptions are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.